on this holiday weekend. I was reading about Memorial Day. Of course, it was established uh, a little bit after the Civil War, and it was called Decoration Day. I still remember my grandmother Smith referring to it as Decoration Day because you'd go out and put flowers on the graves and uh, recognize uh, the veterans who had died for our country. Uh, but it's really uh, not the earliest account of that. Uh, clear back in 431 B.C., uh, Pericles uh, set up basically a Memorial Day in Greece to recognize those who fell during the Peloponnesian War. So it's been a long, long traditional history. Of course, in our country, it was finally uh, a federal government recognized it in 1971 and set a date for it. And so here we are on this Memorial Day weekend. And so thanks for being here today. And I trust that each one of us will grow in Christ as we look into his word today. Well, thinking about uh, Memorial Day, uh, I think of probably one of the greatest speeches ever made during World War II. It was made by British Prime Minister Winston Churchill at the outset of that conflict on the 4th of June, 1940. He gave it to the House of Commons of the Parliament uh, of the United Kingdom on that day. And it's very memorable because he said these words in the midst of this very long speech. He said, we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and on the streets, and we shall fight in the hills. One humorist said, that sounds like one of my family vacations. And so today, we are here because the building block, not only of our nation, of our culture, of our society, of our church, is God's design, and that's the family. And in the book of Ephesians, if you've been with us, we've been journeying through this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus, written about 61 AD, and it is very relevant, as all of Scripture is relevant, to each age. And today we are continuing our study here as we go on. Uh, But I've entitled this uh, series in this portion of Scripture, Homeland Security. And we know that the federal government has a Department of Homeland Security, And as I said last week, it has a budget of $40 billion, and there's some 24 different agencies that uh, function underneath that umbrella group. And their whole purpose is to keep our nation safe and secure and to keep travel safe and secure. And so the question remains, then, how do we keep our families safe and secure? What is our responsibility in each role that we find ourselves in as we journey along here? Well, I want to give you a little uh, secret out here that we have more than a $40 billion budget and more than 24 federal agencies because if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have God. Uh, Howard Hendricks, who wrote about the home, he used to teach a course at Dallas Theological Seminary on marriage and the home and family and parenting. And he said this, a Christian home is a place where sinful people face problems in a sinful world. Yet they face them together with God and his resources, resources, which are centered in Christ. Sinners live in a Christian home, but the sinless Savior lives there too, and that is what makes all the difference in the world, unquote. I want to remind you as we go through this, last week we looked at wives and husbands, uh, that there are no perfect marriages. There are no, and today we're going to look at children and parents, there are no perfect parents, or children. In fact, if you do a study in Scripture of all the families that we can identify, there are no perfect families. There really aren't. Uh, The only perfect one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect one. 
But here the Apostle Paul gives us instruction to help us uh, with our families, whatever our role is, whatever our stage of life is, because I recognize that there are all sorts of different age groups here, different experiences, different backgrounds. This would be a much easier passage to preach to a group of homeschool parents, wouldn't it? And, uh, but yet we're so diverse. You know, many of us are past the stage of rearing children. By the way, what's the difference between raising and rearing? You raise corn and you rear children, okay? That's the difference. So rearing children, some of us are past that stage, but we have grandchildren. Others of you are just beginning that stage or in the middle of that with uh, children of various ages. And so all of this speaks to us on some level. Uh, This, again, is a a portion of Scripture where all of Scripture is written for us. It is good for reproof, training, and righteousness. And yet, not all of Scripture is written to us individually. And yet, the Apostle Paul is addressing the church as a whole. Oftentimes, we read these passages and think in an individual sense that this is all about me. Uh, But the Apostle Paul, in the context of this letter, is writing to the church as a whole, and he's concerned about the health and well-being of the church, so he's encouraging those building blocks within the church, whether you are widowed or a widower or single or hope to be married someday or married and raising children or not having any children. All of these things contribute to your influence in your circle of context. I want to emphasize that, that you will have contact with people who are in the crucible of testing in their families, whatever that may look like. Or you may be in that crucible of testing right now, uh, whatever that may look like. And so today my purpose is that we would allow our faith and our actions to shine before a watching world. As we know that uh, marriage as an institution is under great attack in our culture. And I told you last week that marriage is really not an institution. That's a man label. What it is is it's a God-ordained union between a husband and a wife. And it is defined by the almighty righteous creator God. It's not defined by the Supreme Court or by a government or by a court of law, but it's defined by God himself, no matter what our nation says. And so you go to Scripture and you will see that declared time and time again. And so we come to this passage today. And remember that the Apostle Paul is applying the wealth or the riches that Christians have in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now he says, in light of those things, in the light of your bank account with God that Jesus has provided, this is how you live, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And we are in the midst of that, and we are rolling to completion, believe it or not, that uh, we are uh, going to finish up the book of Ephesians uh, in a few short weeks. But today we're talking about the family. We talked about weddings or marriage last week, wives and husbands, but it flows out of a context. And then Paul tells us that we are to walk in certain ways or live in certain ways. And uh, he tells us to walk wisely, beginning in chapter 5, verse 15. Be careful how you walk or how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise. We don't want to be foolish in our lifestyle. And so the Apostle Paul is emphasizing what a wise lifestyle looks like. And later in verse 18, we come across this command to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to be filled with the Holy Spirit in that. And uh, I was thinking about that. Uh, that in Christian homes, we all face problems. As I said, there's no perfect homes. Uh, We face the problems and we face issues from day to day. And how do we deal with those things? 
because all of us are on this journey. Nobody has arrived in whatever the context you find yourself in. You are not fully complete and arrived in that context yet. And so we won't reach that till we reach heaven when God is the one who fulfills us. But I was thinking about direction, and the Apostle Paul is giving us direction. Last week, we looked at the direction to wives and husbands, and this week, children and parents. Uh, I liken it to a global positioning system. I remember before there was such a thing that my brother-in-law, Don's brother Rick, and I would go fishing quite a bit in western Montana, and we would always choose places we had never been to before because we were looking for the, the magic brook trout as long as your arm. That's what we were always after. And we would take our fly rods and all the tackle, and we would uh, look at the map, the Forest Service maps, and pick a lake. Well, one day we picked Hidden Lake up by Olney, Montana, out in the middle of nowhere. And that's why it was called Hidden Lake. And we had a compass and a map, and we started following it. And uh, we, we took off, and we had to go through what we called dog hair lodgepole, which you can't see 10 feet in front of you. We had to follow the compass and the map, and we had to establish points to know when we needed to return that we could find our vehicle so we could go home uh, at night. And it was a very difficult hike, but it would have been impossible without a compass and a map. And, of course, now we have global positioning systems, even handheld ones that you can go out in the woods, and if you can get a satellite signal, you know exactly within a few feet of where you are on the map. And so we come to chapter 5, verses 18 again, and this is the beginning point for all of us. When you take off on a journey, there is a beginning point. I have a GPS in my pickup truck, and when I turn it on, there's a beginning point. It searches for the satellites first. When it finds the satellites, it triangulates the signal, and there is a beginning point. And I know where I am, at least according to that. And uh, so then if I want to, I can put in a address of where I want to go or someplace, and I jokingly say that I have a big GPS in my pickup so I know how to get to Soap Lake and back, uh, you know, because I, I really don't use it that much, but it is nice to have. And so the beginning point for us all really begins in verse 18, where he uses this uh, command, be filled with the Holy Spirit, be filled with the Spirit. I think there's some aspect in which those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ think you know, that, that's kind of a theoretical, nebulous kind of thing. It's a command, and yet it's important to understand the grammar behind the word of that command. The command is a present tense, which means keep on doing it. It's not an aorist tense like other verbs. This is present tense, which keep on doing it, keep on being filled. It's also in the passive voice, which means that the subject is not the one doing the action, but God is acting upon us. He is the one who fills us. It's not some mechanism. We flip a switch and we're filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the imperative mood, which means it's a command. And we find that command here. And out of that flows other actions. And then a second person plural form. It's for all of us. It's not some special anointing for some spiritual few in the Christian church. It is for every believer. Paul tells us in Corinthians that the moment you're saved, you're baptized by the Holy Spirit into his word, into his church, into his relationship. And we don't feel it. We don't know it. It's not like a water baptism. It's a spirit baptism. Plus, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. 
The more I think about that, the more amazing it is that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would indwell indwell every believer. Why does he do that? He guides us. He leads us. He teaches us. He's our comforter. And so the Holy Spirit is our energy source, if you will. He is the one who energizes us. So this is the beginning point. But the choice is, the act of the choice is to be filled. That's why it's in a command, imperative mood here. Let me read you Max Anders, who's written on the filling of the Holy Spirit. And I won't read all of this. It's quite long. But I want you to read this, and hopefully it will help you understand what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Anders writes that Paul commands us in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit. He is commanding us to allow ourselves to be governed by the fullness of Christ in our lives. In this verse, the results of being filled by the Spirit are speaking in psalms, singing, giving thanks, harmony and relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. And we see in Colossians 3.16, we see the same exact results of teaching with psalms, singing, thankfulness, harmony between husbands and wives, parents, children, masters and slaves. However, these results are produced not by being filled with the Spirit, but by letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Anders goes on to say, being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you produce the exact same results. Therefore, they must be understood as essentially the same thing. We are not controlled by the Holy Spirit the same way a hand manipulates the functioning of a glove, if you were wearing a glove. Rather, we are governed in the sense that a speed limit sign controls how fast we drive, or should. (laughs) We are governed by it in the sense that we have yielded to its authority and are law-abiding citizens. In Acts 13.52, we see the only other occurrence of this verb in the Bible. There we read, and the disciples were filled, there's the English translation, filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So just as the disciples were filled and governed by joy, so we are uh, to allow ourselves to be filled and governed by the Holy Spirit. We do this by allowing the word of Christ to richly dwell within us. I hope each of you has a Bible. If you don't, please pick one up from the information desk out there and let it dwell richly within you. We have to consume it for it to dwell within us. That's why Bible reading and study and listening to the teaching of the word is important. Anders goes on to say, as we let the word richly dwell within us, we come to understand the will of God. The Holy Spirit applies God's truth to our hearts, and as we yield to it, allowing ourselves to be governed by it, we experience the fruit of the Spirit, peace, love, joy, etc. Gradually, more and more over time, we are filled with the Spirit, in a non-sensational manner as opposed to the events in Acts, but it's just as miraculous when you think about it, unquote. And so the Holy Spirit's filling is the beginning point. This is what controls the rest of the passage that we are studying today because the actions of a Spirit-filled believer, how do you know if you're Spirit-filled? We've covered this a couple of times. First of all, beginning in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's speaking of fellowship. Fellowship is around the person of Jesus Christ. It's more than donuts and coffee. As great as those things are, it is about being with others and speaking about Christ, encouraging one another, praying for one another. 
The second part of verse 19, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. That is worship. Notice the direction. It's going to God himself. Worship. Verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So fellowship, worship, and then thankfulness or gratitude is a result, is an evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit. And finally, verse 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Submission. And that's the one, that is the present participle that the Apostle Paul is illustrating in the rest of this passage here when he talks about wives, husbands, children, fathers, employees, employers. And then at the end of that, in chapter 6, there's going to be a big discussion about spiritual warfare because Satan wants to destroy your family. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to destroy your relationship with your children. He wants to destroy your relationship at work. And so there is, this is serious stuff. This is spiritual warfare stuff. And so the act of choice is to be filled with the spirit. The actions are these results. And then primarily he's talking here about the family as he begins here. Wives and husbands. We saw last week there's this thing of mutual submission. All of us are submissive to somebody. You know, you may not think you are, but you are and you should be. We're submissive to government. We're submissive to civil authorities. We're submissive to the rules and regulations of our country, of our state, of our city, uh, and we talk about submission. But it's not a blind submission. I want to repeat that. Uh, if the people, and whether it's the government, whether it's a, a husband or a wife or uh, a, some your boss, uh, if they are telling you to do something that God expressly tells you not to do, it's called civil disobedience, and you have the freedom to disobey. Or if they're telling you some, to, to, to not do something that God commands you to do, and that's the whole key to this whole issue of submission. You are not called to be in an abusive relationship, to be in a place where you're trampled under the feet of others. Uh, there's a higher calling in, in, in ethics. There's called the higher ethical good. And each one of you is created in the image of God. Now, obviously, through the fall of Adam and Eve and through indwelling sin, that image in us is marred. That's why we need a savior. And so uh, when the image of God is uh, marred in other people, by other people, that is sin. And we need to call it what it is. It is sin, whether it's abuse in a marriage, whatever form that takes, abuse in a parent-child relationship, abuse at a workplace, whatever that takes, uh, whatever form that takes, we need to call it what it is, and that is sin. And so just be, be aware of that. <clears throat> well, carrying on with the uh, GPS metaphor, global positioning system, or compass and maps, if you prefer. <clears throat> I, I don't know much about global positioning systems. I just know it works when I try to use it. In fact, mine is so amazing, I have a little British lady in that box, and she tells me where I'm supposed to turn. You know, it's a great deal, you know, so uh, it's nice. Uh, but uh, I was looking up the issue of waypoints. I remember that in global positioning, there are waypoints, and so I downloaded from the Garmin company, which is a big manufacturer of global positioning systems for aviation. In fact, your commercial jets probably have Garmin GPSs in them. Uh, and I, I looked up their glossary. It's a 10-page glossary. And I read through most of it, and I don't understand any of it. And so here it is. This is, uh, this is a quote from the Garmin company glossary on what a waypoint is. This is the definition of a waypoint. Waypoints are locations or landmarks worth recording and storing in your GPS. These locations you may want to return to. 
They may be checkpoints on a route or significant ground features, that is a camp, a truck, a fork in the trail, or a favorite fishing spot. Waypoints may be defined and stored in the unit manually by taking coordinates for the waypoint from a map or other references. This can be done before ever leaving home, or more usually, waypoints may be entered directly by taking a reading with the unit at the location itself, giving it a name, and then saving the point. Waypoints may also be put into the unit by referencing another waypoint already stored, giving the reference waypoint and entering the distance and compass bearing to the new waypoint. So if I've not totally confused you, uh, those are what waypoints are. But anyway, each of us, the Apostle Paul, if he were speaking in contemporary technological terms today, he would say there's some waypoints for you. First of all, children are addressed. In chapter 6, verse 1, remember this is flowing out of being filled with the Holy Spirit, flowing out of that participle, be, be submissive to one another, and notice that it is in Christ, in the fear of Christ, a reference of Christ. And here in verse 1 of chapter 6, uh, we, one through three, we have three waypoints for Christian children. And uh, I think these also apply as we age a bit. Now, my parents are gone, and uh, I did what I could do, and uh, so, uh, but yet I think for many of us, there's still application as we go through this. In chapter one, the first waypoint way of, excuse me, chapter six, verse one, the first waypoint, the first marker, the first uh, goal on your chart or your map is this aspect of the act of obedience. Children, obey your parents, and how are we to do that? In the Lord, in the Lord. In fact, that's another imperative. There are four imperatives in this passage. That's the first one is obey your parents. Uh, Edward Duke of Windsor, who visited the United States back in, I think, the 1950s, commented on the United States. The Duke of Windsor, of course, was from England. He said, the thing, and I quote him, the thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children, unquote. <laughs> uh, it takes someone from the outside to observe some things, doesn't it? I think uh, one of the aspects of a healthy family is that the parents are on the same page and that they are together in how they uh, function in the household. Secondly, the parents are the ones making the decisions, not the children, and the children are submissive to their parents. And again, uh, if it's an abusive situation, God is not calling that to continue or to exist. Children are to obey or listen to their parents. Obedient living is honoring the Lord, as it says here. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, be obedient, obedient to your parent in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Well-pleasing to the Lord. I think sometimes children, especially if you have rules in your household, uh, they think that uh, they trans translate that as God is a cosmic killjoy, you know, because especially if you use scripture and go back to these things, you think, oh, boy, God is just trying to kill all my fun. Well, Oswald Chambers, who is a, a great writer and a theologian, said that the root of all sin is the suspicion that God is not good. Let that sink in a minute. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God is is not good. And somehow, I think we have generations of children and perhaps their parents as well who think that God is not good and that sin is attractive and that God is some kind of a killjoy. Josh McDowell writes that uh, that is endemic in our culture and society. 
And he talks about in his relationship with his own children, he has hammered home the idea that with every command in Scripture, every precept, every thou shalt do this or thou shalt not do this, uh, there are always two positive principles. And if you are rearing children right now, uh, no matter what their age, you need to emphasize these two principles with anything that God lays down in his will here, the thou shalts or thou shalt nots. The first principle is that God is good and gives us those instructions to protect us. And secondly, he gives them to provide. He is not a cosmic killjoy who wants to take all the fun out of life. He wants to provide and protect who we are. So the first waypoint is this obedience. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? For this is right. Right in whose eyes? In God's eyes. This is right in God's eyes. Secondly, there's an attitude of honor. The second waypoint is found in verse 2, an attitude of honor. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, uh, the value of honor. Comes out of Exodus 20, verse 12, Deuteronomy 5, 16. It's the fifth commandment, and it is an instruction to the nation Israel, of course, but the principle is there, and he repeats the principle here. The Apostle Paul quotes out of the Old Testament. And how do we honor our parents? I think, uh, like one guy said, I just wish my kids would tell me sometimes, quote, you're so cool, Dad, unquote. Uh, Pass the broccoli, please, or... uh, no, no, thanks. Don't buy me that. It's too expensive. You know, those kinds of things. Uh, bored? How could I be bored? You know? And uh, so there's lots of ways to honor your parents. And obedience is that beginning place. Waypoint number three is this ageless promise that is given for children. Not only to obey and honor. Those are the two imperatives. Obey your parents. Honor your parents are the imperatives. And then there's a promise we find in verse 3 so that it may be well with you, that you may live long on the earth. It is a general promise of well-being. It is not an absolute promise, because we know people probably who have honored and obeyed their parents and yet died at a young age. This is a general promise, like the Proverbs. It's a general direction. And typically families where the children honor their parents uh, have a more fulfilled living life. It's a promise of longevity, a general promise. I was reading about Roger Staubach. He was the uh, quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys when they were world championship team way back in ancient history, back in the last century. And uh, if you don't know Roger Staubach, look him up. He's got a lot of good things to say. But that was back in the day where the coach sent in all the plays. The quarterback dared not call any kind of play on his own. He only played the plays, called the plays that the coach sent in. And the coach, of course, was Tom Landry, uh, who was a a, a great coach. And it used to bug Roger Staubach to no end. And the only time he could run his own play is if it was an emergency, and by golly, it had better work, or he would really get in big trouble with his coach. And even though uh, Roger Staubach considered Coach Landry to have a genius mind when it came to football strategy, he said that pride... Uh, would get in his way, and he should be able to run the team because he was the one out on the field. But later, Staubach said, I faced up to the issue of obedience, and once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and, of course, victory in that endeavor. And so those are the three waypoints for children, uh, the act of obedience, the attitude of honor, 
and remembering the ageless promise. That takes us to chapter 6, verse 4, where he addresses fathers in our translations. And that's four waypoints for Christian parents, four waypoints for Christian parents. As I was studying uh, this week, I noticed that when I was studying this text, even though in my version of Scripture, the New American Standard Version, they translate that Greek word as fathers, plural, the word fathers here in Ephesians is the exact same Greek word that is translated parents in Hebrews 11.23, which reads, the Scripture there says that, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents, plural. And so there's this idea that uh, even though they've addressed fathers here in our English translation in the plural like this, in a, it's translated parents in another place. And this leads me to believe and take the position that the training and admonition uh, isn't just the father's responsibility. For instance, single moms who are raising children on their own bear a heavy responsibility both to complete the father's responsibility and the mother of the children. And uh, when we lay the weight of that responsibility at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will find hope and strong help as we pursue to rear our children to maturity. You know, uh, in our country, especially those of us from Northern European extraction, uh, we tend to take on the model, which I believe is a false model and it's caused great detriment. It's called the European model of parenting. That is where the father is the provider protector, provider protector, and that's why they go to work and they don't show up, provider protector, those are good things. Uh, but then the mother is the nourisher cherisher, provider protector's dad, nourisher cher- cherisher is mom. And uh, I think that's a false model when you analyze it with Scripture. Because fathers are called to nourish and cherish the mother. If we go back a few verses, uh, yes, we're to provide, we're to protect, provide the safety net for our families, and yet we are to nourish and cherish our children. That's God's way. That's God's design for the home. And uh, I don't know how many times I've seen a father and a, a, a husband and wife in marital difficulties, and he can't understand it. He says, I go to work, I bring home the check, I put a roof over her house, what's wrong? Well, it could be on the nourishing, cherishing side of things. could be a problem right there. And so the, pow- the, the children are to be treated fairly. Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's the negative command there. That is the imperative. Do not provoke. Do not provoke. In Colossians 3.21, which is the parallel passage, it is written there, Fathers, do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. They may not lose heart. That word there means to arouse, provoke, mostly in a bad sense, irritate, embitter the child. The idea behind that word is do not embitter, do not provoke, do not exasperate your children. This complements perfectly the word that's used here in Ephesians 6, 4. The meaning here is to anger, to make angry, to bring one along to a deep-seated anger. This kind of anger in children springs from continual and habitual unfair treatment. Wouldn't that kind of treatment make you angry? And of course it would, because some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've been struggling with bitterness and resentment towards your parents for many years. And you need to let that go and make sure it's not repeated in your generation. 
One commentator describes this habitual unfairness this way. A child frequently irritated by over-severity or injustice, nevertheless, to which nevertheless it must submit, acquires a spirit of sullen resignation leading to despair. As I've listened to our, our folks here that teach in schools, I, I start hearing those same kind of messages of students who come and they are in sullen resignation. They are in despair because of whatever's going on in their home life. So children are to be treated fairly. I was reading about uh, Yoshihito Kato, a Japanese man, and he entered a shouting contest. And uh, he's a father of three children. And he won the shouting contest because he could shout the phrase, if you want war, you go. I don't know what that has anything to do. But that was his phrase that won him the contest. And the sound meter registered 115.8 decibels. That's like standing underneath the overhead train in Chicago and when it roars by right over your head. Uh, For that winning shout, Cato Uh, Mr. Cato won $750 grand prize of the loud voice contest. And later on, when they interviewed Mr. Cato, he admitted that he probably had built up his vocal cords by shouting at his children. And uh, he sounds like a threatener repeater to me. Uh, But uh, children want to be treated fairly. Waypoint number two, children are to be raised tenderly. Look again at four, the second part of word. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but... Bring them up. That is the second imperative for parents. Bring them up. It's got the the correlation of nourishment, of cherishing them. The word translates to nourish, provide for with tender care. Tenderness is a sensitivity towards others. Each one of your children, if you have children, is like a diamond. There's different facets, and you see one facet at a time or a couple at a time. And to be caring, sympathetic, compassionate, responsive, warm, and compassionate with your children. Our children need moms and dads who demonstrate tender affection. When I worked in Dallas, my first job in Dallas when we moved there, uh, going to grad school, was at an exotic hardwood dealer up in Richardson. And he handled all different kinds of exotic hardwoods for builders and people who did furniture. And, and uh, the owner was my boss, and he was quite a craftsman. And he would do projects that I would help him with in this massive shop and had wonderful equipment. But uh, he would usually use lacquer, a lacquer finish on some of his projects. And it would be coat after coat after coat to protect the wood, to beautify it. And that's the idea that relationships are built up like a fine lacquer finish on a fine piece of furniture with layers of kindness, with layers of tenderness. And I know it's difficult, but uh, Gary Edzo uh, talked about this process of parenting. He said he once asked his daughter, whose name is Jennifer, uh, what she thought were the biggest problems that children had with fathers. And she automatically said, dads have too many tomorrows. You know, I'll play with you tomorrow. I'll talk to you tomorrow. And she was right. So his challenge to us as fathers, whether you have grown children or little children, is be there now for your children, being, building quality and quantity benchmarks of trust. Don't wait out for tomorrow. 
Uh, and as I said last week, you know, take the number of days left before your child turns 18, before they go to college or work or military, whatever they're going to do. Look at the number of days. That's always a very sobering thing. Listen to your children. Respect their feelings as parents. If you have been wrong or too harsh with them, be person enough, man or woman enough, mom and dad enough to confess, admit your wrongdoing, and ask for forgiveness. I still remember the first time I did that with my girls when they were little. Boy, did that, that shook my pride. And it revealed how prideful I was when I had to ask their forgiveness for something I had done for a little child. Listen to your input your spouse gives you about rearing children. Again, a healthy home, the husband and wife are on the same page making the decisions. And high touch and dispense liberal doses of encouragement to sons and daughters. So waypoint number two, children are to be raised tenderly. Waypoint number three, children are to be instructed firmly, instructed firmly, intentional instruction in the home. You know, we live in a culture and society where we uh, send off our children to be educated other places, whether it's the school, the church, some club, some sporting activity, and parents need to be the primary ones to instruct and teach their children. Look at verse 4 again. But bring them up in the dis- discipline and instruction who of the Lord. Discipline means training by means of regulations, rules, and uh, primarily refers to what is done to the child. Uh, we need to focus on discipline, not punishment. There's a distinction in Scripture between discipline and punishment. Discipline is teaching, and it is about the child. It is about the positive aspect of helping the child to grow to maturity, to uh, adulthood, whereas punishment is punitive, and that's more about what the parent feels. Oh, I feel vengeful, or I feel justified, or this kid needs this lesson. That's punishment. There is a difference between discipline and punishment, and here He's talking about discipline. And then instruction is the next word, training by means of the spoken word. It's that intentional aspect of teaching, warning, encouragement, and it's mainly what is said to the child in training them to righteousness. I have a little secret for you who are still rearing children. It is not the responsibility of the church or, 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 or even the school to teach your children. The primary responsibility lies with you. Yes, we are thankful we can partner with that. We are thankful that downstairs right now, some of your children are being instructed in the Word of God. But this is only a 40, 50-minute hour thing. Uh, You have them the other 167 hours of the week. It is your responsibility before God to train them, to teach them, to discipline them, and do that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from another era, wrote this. When you are disciplining a child, you should have first controlled yourself. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Self-control, the control of temper, is an essential prerequisite in the discipline of others. And I come, I know exactly what this is like because uh, there was a lot of anger in my own house. And that's what I thought was the normal way of handling things, you just get mad about it. And I still deal with that today. I wanted just to put that out before you. And uh, so I've had to ask forgiveness for my children and for my wife and uh, sometimes from some of you. Uh, so that is an issue to remember. Waypoint number four is children are to be reared faithfully or Christianly. Look at the end of verse four there. Discipline instruction of the Lord. 
the Lord refers to the quality of training in the home. It's a, a control and a control of the Holy Spirit of God filling the parents, parents for the task. There is fairness, tenderness, firmness, and faithfulness in rearing children. And when we think about honoring our parents, that lasts for as long as they are alive, doesn't it? I found that I had to be more intentional at honoring my parents when they reached their 90s and I was in my 50s and 60s. And, uh, and some of you are there now today. And some of you have children who need to be honoring you, and hopefully they are doing that. So enablement for our families, let's, let's circle back to verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. How do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? Fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission. That is always the results of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is the filling of the Word of Christ dwelling within us, being in His Word. One of my uh, favorite singers from, uh, I hate to say how long ago, decades ago, decades ago, uh, is Harry Chapin. And Harry Chapin wrote a song and performed it. And it was based on some poetry his wife, Sandra, had written. And I'll tell you the rest of the story after we listen to Harry Chapin. I'm going to, he's here by the miracle of technology. child arrived just the other day. He came to the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. He learned to walk while I was away, and he was talking for I knew it. And as he grew, he'd say, I'm gonna be like you, Dad. You know I'm gonna be like you. And the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when. But we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. Well, my son turned ten just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said... Not today, I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay. And he walked away, but his smile never dimmed. It said, I'm gonna be like him, yeah. You know I'm gonna be like him. And the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon. Little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you're coming home, Dad, I don't know when. But we'll get together then, son. You know we'll have a good time then. college just the other day so much like a man i just had to say son i'm proud of you can you sit for a while he shook his head and he said with a smile what i'd really like that is to borrow the car keys see you later can i have them please and the cat's in the cradle and a silver spoon little boy blue and the man on the moon when you're coming home son i don't know when We'll get together then, Dad. You know we'll have a good time then. Well, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I 
called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle and the kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as he hung up the phone, it occurred to me He'd grown up just like me My boy was just like me And the cats in the cradle and a silver spoon Little boy blue and the man in the moon When you're coming home, son, I don't know when But we'll get together then, Dad You know we'll have a good time then Always a sobering song, isn't it? As the worship team comes up, we're going to finish with a couple of uh, songs, worship songs. But, uh, you know, Harry Chapin 